0: Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your Word, the Bible. We pray that as we look now at this passage, that you help us to see more of who Jesus is and what He has done, and what it means for us to rely on Him. Please fill us with your Spirit that we may uh, that we may give our whole lives for Him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember once talking to a bloke about Jesus, and I was telling him about how I was convinced from the Bible. Of who jesus is the biblical evidence i so said i'm convinced from the bible that jesus is the king i'm convinced from the bible that he died and rose again i'm convinced from the bible that he's the only one who can bring us to heaven but this bloke he wasn't convinced and he said to me he said to me how can you trust the bible how can you trust the new testament he said he said it's all written by followers of jesus it's written by believers they're all biased he said if you could show me writings.'" by people who didn't believe in Jesus but saw his death and resurrection and talk about how he died and rose again, then I'd believe it. Have you ever heard people say stuff stuff like that? Uh, They say the account of the the death and resurrection of Jesus is biased because it's only written by people who believed it, by by Christians. You think there's some strength to the argument? I I mean, there is such a thing as people being biased, isn't there? Uh, People get... People get vested interests in stuff that they become a part of. And so they're inclined to be biased about it. If you want to come to a conclusion about whether the earth is flat, you wouldn't want to do it by only reading stuff by paid members of the Flat Earth Society. Well, then why would you come to a conclusion about Jesus by only reading stuff from his followers in the New Testament? See the argument? See the issue? The New Testament is all written by believers. So how can we trust it? Well, in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 9, which is the chapter we're up to, we've been working through Mark's gospel the last few months, and we're up to chapter 9 now, and we're just on the other side of a major turning point in the story. And we need to just go back to it in chapter 8 to get our bearings. For the first eight chapters of Mark, Jesus was doing miracle after miracle after miracle until finally, chapter 8, verse 29, the disciples recognized that he's the Christ, that he's the king in God's kingdom. As I say, it's a major turning point. The thing is, as we saw last week, the disciples don't really understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And they have no idea what they're in for as his disciples. They've got these wrong ideas in their heads about what the Christ will do. They think the Christ is going to be, rightly, they think he's going to be the king. They think he's going to be the king of the world. They think we are buddies of the king of the world. That is pretty cool. must be some perks, I would have thought, in being the buddies of the king of the world. We're in with the Christ. All our dreams, they think, are about to come true. Uh, They're going to be rich and powerful beyond their wildest imaginations. But that's not the kind of Christ that Jesus is. And in chapter 8, verse 31, he started to teach them what's going to happen to him. He he said he's going to suffer and die and rise again. And then Jesus told his disciples what that would mean for them. What it would mean for them to follow him. Said so it's not going to be power and glory for you. He so said, you want to follow? We need to come to the cross. We need to suffer and die with me. He says, it's in verse 34 of chapter 8, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Tough call. Tough call, don't you think? But but Jesus gave his disciples all kinds of re, all kinds of reasons why they ought to do what he says, why they ought to follow him even to death. He says he says that the salvation that he gives is is more valuable than the rest of the whole world put together. And so there's our context. There's our context for chapter nine. The disciples they finally recognise that Jesus is the king in God's kingdom, but now he's he's completely shattered their expectations. He's told them he's going to suffer and die. He's told them that following him will mean suffering and death for them. From their perspective, it is, it's, it's unbelievable. They, can, they just cannot, they're like spectacular and they, they just cannot get in their heads that, that the king could suffer. So we come to chapter 9. Um, chapter 9 verse 1, uh, Jesus says something that, uh, that is often misunderstood. He tells the disciples tells them that they're going to see the kingdom of god come with power before they die have a look with me at uh, chapter 9 and verse 1 chapter 9 and verse 1 and he said to them i tell you the truth some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of god come with power now, when many people read this, they think that it's talking about the, um, the, the, the return of Jesus to earth, the, the second coming, so-called. Uh, they think that Jesus is saying that he will return before all his disciples have died. And so they think Jesus got it wrong. I think they've got it wrong, though. Um, it's not a right understanding of what Jesus says here. The clue, I think, is in the previous verse. If you look back to the previous verse, because this flows on, you'll see that Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming in his Father's glory. Do you see that? Halfway through chapter 8, verse 38, it says, the Son of Man... Be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You see that there? Now, again, people think that's talking about the second coming. Um, People think that the song we just sang about seeing him coming with the clouds of heaven, they think it's talking about the second coming. It's not. It's not talking about that. In fact, it's a reference to the Old Testament. And I've put the reference there on your outline from Daniel chapter 7. And as I read this from Daniel 7, I want you to think, what's the perspective? Where is Jesus coming to? Okay, where is he coming to? Where's the son of man coming to? So Daniel 7 is there on your outline. <clears throat> In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Where's the Son of Man coming to? He's coming to God, isn't he? Not coming to earth, he's coming to God. He's coming into heaven. Um, So when did that happen for Jesus? When was Jesus uh, given all authority in heaven and earth? When, When did he come to the Father? Well, it's when he died and rose again and ascended to the Father, isn't it? And so that's, that's what Jesus is talking about in chapter 8, verse 38. It's what he means by the coming of the Son of Man. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 9, verse 1 as well. It's, it's flowing on. That is the powerful coming of the kingdom of God. He's promising that the disciples will not die until they see him die and rise again and ascend to the Father. And of course, that's a promise that, is, that did come true, isn't it? Uh, the disciples, despite what Jesus is telling them to do, they didn't follow him to death on the cross uh, they did see him die and rise again and ascend to God the disciples did see the kingdom of God come with power in their own lifetimes what Jesus said came true but remember at this point they, they, they cannot believe it's going to happen they've still got spectacular zap in their minds they, they, they cannot believe that Jesus has to die before he enters his glory they find his words really hard to take and so God does something amazing God here, what he does is he's being a bit like one of those ladies in the supermarket. You know, they generally hang around near the fridges in the supermarket and they'll offer you samples of their stuff. You know, come and taste some Philadelphia cream cheese with green stuff on on a cracker or something. They'll give you little samples of things. Okay, well, God, what he does here is he gives the disciples a sample of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. A sample of his resurrected glory to help them to believe him, to listen to him. God gives them a foretaste, a foretaste of the coming of the kingdom in power. Jesus takes his three closest disciples. There's Peter, James, and John. He heads up a mountain. It's probably Mount Hermon. And Jesus is transfigured before them, literally metamorphosed. God reveals Jesus' glory to the disciples. And uh, Moses and Elijah, two of the most famous Old Testament prophets, they appear to meet with Jesus. Verse 2, have a look with me, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now Peter's scared. He doesn't know what to say. In typical form, when he doesn't know what to say, he says something. And so he offers hospitality to his guests. A gracious idea, but just kind of misses the point. A bit superfluous, really. Verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. Uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Um, then a cloud comes. It's uh, Old Testament symbol for the, the, the presence of God. And God says the same thing about Jesus here as He said back at His baptism. He says, and first He's quoting Psalm two, where it talks about uh, the King of the world who, who overtakes the world. He says, "You are My Son." Well, this is My Son. And then He quotes Isaiah forty two, which is talking about the servant of the Lord who will die for God's people. He says, uh, "Whom I love." And then, in a final little snippet, He quotes Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, which is talking about uh, the prophet that God would raise up like Moses. He says, "He says, listen to him." The disciples look. And only Jesus is there. Moses, Elijah, they've passed away. God is speaking about Jesus alone. Jesus alone is the king and the servant. Jesus alone is the Christ who suffers and dies. They need to listen to him. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud This is my son. Whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Amazing experience for the disciples, don't you reckon? A great reason to listen to Jesus. But Jesus knows they still don't understand, they still don't believe. And so he says, guys, just just keep a lid on this, all right, until you see me rise again from the dead. And then they don't even know what he's talking about with that. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And then the disciples asked Jesus a question. Now, um, this may seem like a bit of a strange question to you and and to me, but with a bit of background, I think we can understand it. They They ask, Mate, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? What's going on here is, in the Old Testament... There was this expectation that Elijah would come and clear the way for God. Elijah would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so what they're saying is, Jesus, Elijah's meant to come first and prepare the way for you. There's no need for you to suffer. You see, They still think Jesus doesn't understand his Old Testament properly. They still don't believe he has to suffer. They're still trying to educate him theologically. They still think Jesus has got it wrong. Verse 11, and they asked him, But why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answers by talking about John the Baptist. He says of John, Elijah did come first. He, He did prepare the way for me, but just like they killed him, they're going to kill me. Verse 12. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. There are some people in the world who are just really hard to convince about things. Uh, You show some people footage of the moon landing, and they go, yeah, it must have been made in 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 a TV studio. Or you show them uh, photos from outer space demonstrating that the world is round and they think it's all a big conspiracy theory to make them fall off the edge of their flat earth. Um, You show people graphic photos of what happens to you when you smoke but they keep smoking anyway. With some people, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't convince them. The disciples here are a bit like that, aren't they? I mean, what's it going to take to convince these blokes? They've seen Jesus' glory. God himself has spoken to them. He said, guys, Pete, Pete, Jimmy, John, listen to him. Listen! But they still don't get it. They can't believe. They just cannot believe that Jesus will die. And as they come down the mountain, things are no better. Things are no better with the other disciples. The other disciples, they've, they've failed in an exorcism attempt. Uh, the teachers of the law, they think great and they're in for a bit of biffo and the crowd are all watching on going fight, fight, fight. They're all cheering for a fight. It's, it's a scene of chaos and it's a scene of, sorry to use a big word, but uh, I do like to you know, educate you and inform you. Uh, it's a scene of ubiquitous unbelief. All right, okay, you, can, you can run that uh, by someone tomorrow, that word. That it, it means unbelief is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Okay? Nobody believes the way they're supposed to. Verse 14. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's it's ubiquitous unbelief. Uh, But now now Jesus does come upon some faltering faith. Um, As he calls for the boy to be brought to him, he finds that that the dad has a a faith of sorts. He's a bit like the disciples. He believes, but he's struggling with unbelief. The thing is, for Jesus, that's enough. Because it's not a question of how much faith, it's a question of the strength of the object of the faith. And so on the basis of this faltering faith, Jesus heals his son. At the end of verse 19, Jesus says, he says, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if he can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Later on, the disciples asked Jesus what went wrong and, and they find out again that Jesus is still willing to explain stuff to them. If they just come and ask, he's willing to explain like he has been right through. Uh, verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, Jesus is still willing to answer, but in the, last scene, in the last scene for today, we see that Jesus has another go at trying to teach his disciples about what's coming. He says that he will die and rise again, but they don't understand, and on this issue, they won't ask him to explain. Verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Well, the disciples aren't looking too good, are they? Um, They have seen and heard some amazing stuff. They have seen Jesus transfigured. They had a foretaste of the glory of the heavenly Jesus. They've heard the voice of God himself tell them who he is. Tell them to listen to him. They've seen and heard Jesus drive out another demon but yet they, they cannot believe what he's saying. They just cannot believe that Jesus could possibly suffer and die and then rise again, and they won't listen to him. All right, well, there, there's the passage in its context. That's what it means. Next question then for us, what, what's the application of this passage for us? What, what are we going to do with it? And your outline there, you can see a couple of ideas. Um, a couple of ideas about how this might apply to us. First, and I think this is, the, this is the fundamental application, it's the same as last week, this passage is calling on us to believe in the king who suffers. We need to believe what the disciples at this stage in Mark could not believe. The king of the world, the, the God of the universe, came to earth to die. It wasn't a a mistake it wasn't an accident it wasn't an afterthought that is what he came for he came to die on the cross to pay for the sins of you and and me it's only then that he returned to the father in glory we need to believe in the king who suffers more than that though we need to commit ourselves to his path just like jesus suffered on his way to glory he calls on his followers to do the same We need to get our expectations about what the Christian life should be like here on earth. Uh, There are people around today who will tell you that the Christian life is all about health and wealth and prosperity, that when you trust in Jesus, all your problems will suddenly get fixed and your life will be nice. That is not the picture that Jesus gives. It's not what Jesus says to expect. Or or I keep running into people who somehow, I don't know what Bible verse this is, but, but somehow they think that that God's will for them is to be happy. I heard a very sad example the other day. A bloke was having an adulterous affair. His pastor, a mate of mine, confronted him about it. And the bloke said, But surely God wants me to be happy. Again, it's not the picture that Jesus gives. Here in this life, God wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be holy. And that may mean not being happy. It may mean obeying what God says, even if it makes you unhappy. The biblical expectation is suffering here and now, glory later. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here in Mark's Gospel, to be willing to give up everything, even give up life itself, for him. Are you willing to count the cost? Is it worth it, do you think? Are you ready to commit yourself to trust and obey Jesus no matter what? Well, then you've understood the passage. That's what Jesus wants. Now, of course, at this stage in Mark, um, the disciples weren't up for it. And I think as we read, we are meant to disapprove of them. I don't know why, but everybody in Bible study seems to be very sympathetic towards the the disciples. Everyone seems to, you know, uh, Steve apparently is the only one who calls them numb nuts. Uh, Everyone else seems to be very sympathetic towards these disciples. I, I don't think we're meant to be sympathetic towards them. I think we're meant to see them as an example of unbelief not to be followed here. Unlike them, we should listen to Jesus and trust him. But the thing is, from our perspective, there is some value in the stubbornness and unbelief of the disciples. There's value in it. There's value in it because it makes them good witnesses later on. Later on, when they are finally convinced, they are good witnesses. That's my second point, and it brings us back to where we started. Yes, it is true. The New Testament is only written by people who believed in Jesus. But can you see here, we are not dealing with gullible people. We are not dealing with people who are just kind of vague and don't really know what's going on these people yes they became believers but they didn't start off as believers and they took a heck of a lot of convincing and can you see also from here that uh, that jesus disciples had nothing to gain about their testimony about it they had no reason to be biased jesus warned them here you want to follow me it means death following following me it's not glory it's death And that's what happened. After they saw Jesus die and rise and started telling people about him, they all ended up persecuted, imprisoned, tortured. You know, Of of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 of them ended up killed for their faith. And yet not one of them said, no, wait, wait, hang on, sorry, just a joke. Every one of them stood firm to the end. Every one of them stood firm. They just kept on saying what Peter says in Acts, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard can't see any reason why they would be biased towards lying about Jesus. Nothing to gain. I can't see any reason that they would do what they did unless they knew it was true. I know there are people who say you can't trust the Bible because it's, it's only written by believers. But, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think it's a strange thing to ask for. It's a bit of a weird thing to ask for an unbeliever who saw the death and resurrection of Jesus to write about it. Put yourself in the picture for a second. If you were there, if you saw the miracles, if you saw the transfiguration, if God spoke to you, if you experienced the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, how could you remain an unbeliever? I don't understand how people can ask for evidence from unbelievers about the death and resurrection of Jesus. People who saw the death and resurrection of Jesus were convinced and became believers because it was so convincing. Do you see what I'm saying? The disciples... They did end up as believers, but they were far from gullible. They had nothing to gain from being biased. The simple fact is they were convinced by the overwhelming evidence. Right, well, I know at this point in Mark 9 they are failing. I know they ought to listen to Jesus and believe him. I know we should be frowning, and, but I think there's a sense in which we can be glad that they didn't believe. There's a sense in which we can be glad that they took a lot of convincing. I know I am because, well, because it, it really helps to convince me what these disciples are saying is true. Jesus is the king. He did die and rise again. And following him, it's, it's worth more than, than anything, worth more than everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this foretaste of his glory that you gave to the disciples. And we thank you that uh, you showed them his death and his resurrection and his ascension to you We thank you, Heavenly Father, that they were convinced and we thank you that they have um, written down what they saw for us. We thank you that it is convincing in itself and we pray that you help us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be willing to rely on him and obey him no matter what the cost. Please help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.